Okay, you can turn to the book of Romans. I like to do things in order. I like to do things organized. And uh, I was looking at the, the sermons that I had selected for um, April and May. And for some reason, I picked the same one for last Sunday and for this Sunday night. I don't know how it happened. It just happened. So uh, we're not going to do that because I want to I keep pushing our way through Galatians. But already for next, well, two Sunday nights, next Sunday night, no church, no evening church because of Mother's Day. Uh, but anyway, so the following Sunday night, uh, we'll be back on track with Galatians. So we're just going to do something different tonight. But you will need to start in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. But I'm not going to read that yet. The Roman Empire was revered for its size. Now, what we call Europe today, including the Middle East, that was the Roman Empire. It was huge. It was not only revered for its size, but it was feared for its cruelty. They had a huge military. They invented crucifixion. They had this big Colosseum. I've been there. It's huge. And they used to kill Christians in there. They'd have Christians down there and they'd let lions in and come after them and so on. But not only did they do that with Christians, they would fill the thing up with water and have actually sea battles in the Colosseum. It's amazing. But also very cruel. And so Rome was feared for its cruelty. Rome was also envied for its peace. Something known as the Pax Romana. Uh, Pax meaning peace, the Latin for peace. It lasted a thousand years. Basically the Roman Empire was at peace for a thousand years. And the Roman Empire was also known for its roads. That's one of the things that helped keep Rome in power. It also is one of the things that helped Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire. Paul wrote the book of Romans to Christians living in Rome. In chapter 1 of Romans in verse 7, he says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In so doing, though, As Paul wrote to these uh, Roman Christians or Christians in Rome, he left a legacy of salvation verses known as the Romans Road. And so I want to look at the Romans Road tonight, not because I think you probably need to hear it, but I would guarantee you probably need to share it with somebody. And some people, like I've done, will mark their Bibles with these verses we're going to look at tonight. So you can just go from one to the next to the next, write down, lead them down the Romans Road, salvation. But along the way, we're going to see some things that will be also beneficial to us in our walk with Christ. So let's begin, first of all, with the problem. The problem. Everything in the Romans road starts with P. Uh, Beginning with the problem. That's Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Paul writes, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the problem. All have sinned. We've all done something wrong in our lives. We've at least told one lie. In our lives, we at least once were disobedient to our parents. In our lives, at least once, we had an evil thought. I know some of you are thinking, once? (laughs) You think I told a lie just once? You think I had an evil thought just once? I'm just saying, at least once, you can admit here tonight that you've done one of these things. You've sinned. The Bible says it's true, but you know in your own life it's true. And we've all come short of God's glory. Again, it says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? Yeah, you could talk about a lot of things there, but let's keep it simple. Jesus is the glory of God. He is perfect in every way. He is sinless. 
He never told one lie. He never had one evil thought. He never once disobeyed his parents, Mary and Joseph. Not even once. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's the glory of God. And so he becomes our standard. He becomes our measuring stick. And when we compare ourselves to him, we realize just how sinful we are. But that's not what we do, is it? This isn't what we do at all. We don't compare ourselves to him. We compare ourselves to each other. We compare ourselves to not only each other in the church, but uh, somebody that doesn't go to church, doesn't believe in God. We compare ourselves to them, and boy, we really look good, don't we? Don't compare yourselves to others in the church. Don't compare yourselves to others out there in the world. Compare yourself to the glory of God, Jesus Christ. And while before you might have thought you were pretty okay, When you compare yourself to the perfection of Jesus Christ, you realize you're a sinner and you have fallen short of the standard, the glory of God. So that's the problem. Secondly, let's look at the price. Go with me to Romans chapter 6. So the problem, Romans 3.23, that's the first thing you want to share with somebody, all of sin. And then secondly, we look at the price, Romans 6.23. And just the first part of that verse. Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, wage is something that is earned. If you do your chores, maybe you get an allowance. You get a wage. If you have a job, you earn a wage. Well, when we sin, we earn a wage. And the wage we earn is death, both physical and spiritual death. Physical death keeps people in a grave for a while. Spiritual death will keep people in hell forever. Eternally separated from God. Tormented with fire forever. Go with me to Mark chapter 9. I want us to look at Jesus' words again about hell. I shared this maybe a couple years ago as we were preaching through all the books of the Bible. But I just want to reiterate a few things. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 43, talking about spiritual death, hell. He writes, well, Jesus says, and Mark writes, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that should never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Here's a few things Jesus says about hell. First of all, it's a real place. It's a real place. And it's actually not intended for human occupation. Jesus would say elsewhere in Matthew 25, verse 41, that it's been prepared for the devil and his angels. I want you to notice there, he said it's prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is prepared just as heaven is. Oh, we love that a verse from Jesus in John 14 too. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. And we love that verse. But not only is heaven a prepared place, hell is a prepared place for the devil and his angels. And while hell was not intended for human occupation, it will be used for human occupation. Hell will contain Satan and all his demons. Hell will also contain every person 
who did not have a saving faith in the one true and living God of the Bible. Hell is a real place. Not only is it a real place, it's real painful. Revelation 14.11 calls it a place of restlessness. In my mind, I think of unquenchable thirst, insatiable hunger, unrelievable pain and misery. It is a place of eternal torment. Look what Jesus says in verse 44, uh, 444, that in hell parasites gnaw away for eternity with no relief on the occupants there. He says where the worm dies not. And, and so parasites, these worms, gnaw away at the occupants of hell. Uh, the word worm that's in the Greek here is literally maggot. Now, I don't know if you know what maggots are, but uh, flies lay their eggs in flesh. And the larvae feed on the flesh to nourish themselves. The larvae, the worms, they eat their host from the inside out. Jesus said, this is what hell is. And by the way, he emphasizes it by repeating himself three times. Verse 44, he says, the worm dies not. Verse 46, the worm dies not. Verse 48, where the worm dies not. Jesus elsewhere spoke of weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 22 and verse 13. Weeping from the pain and misery. But I think weeping too, remembering each rejected opportunity. How many times have you invited people to church? How many times have people sat through sermons? How many times have you passed out tracts and people disregarded them, threw them in the trash? I love the work of the Gideons. They pass out Bibles. And I'm not allowed to be a Gideon. That's the only thing I don't like about them. But anyway, they go to college campuses and they pass out scriptures. And kids take the scriptures and they walk over to the closest trash can and throw them in there. And I believe for all eternity, those people that have treated God, God's people, and God's word like that, they're going to remember it. And they're going to be weeping. And they're going to be weeping because they will realize they fell for Satan's lie. What is Satan's lie? There's no hell. There's no price to pay. Just live your life. Have a good time. Not only did Jesus say there'd be weeping, he said there'd be gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth for torment. Uh, What that word gnashing in the Greek refers to is clenched teeth in agony. You know when something really hurts, you go, oh, like that. Hell is a real place. It's real painful. It's real dark. Jesus called it outer darkness in Matthew 8 and verse 12. For all of those who are in hell for eternity, they will be in absolute darkness. It's also real hot. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.27 calls it fiery indignation. Hell is a burning fire. And those who are there in hell, their flesh will burn continually without ever being consumed. Again, look what Jesus does. He repeats this five times in this passage. He says the fire should never be quenched, verse 43. Verse 44, the fire is not quenched. Verse 45, the fire will not be quenched. Verse 46, the fire is not quenched. Verse 48, the fire is not quenched. It's real hot. Hell is real lonely. Even though it's shared with fellow unbelievers, hell is a solitary existence. Not only that, but hell is the absence of all that God is. Nothing that God is, is in hell. And hell is real crowded. Every person who ever lived, accepting Jesus Christ, deserves to be in hell, and it's big enough for that. Most people who ever lived We'll spend eternity in hell. Ancient people, unreached people, good people, religious people like church members and church leaders. 
Most people who ever lived will spend their eternity in hell. The only people who won't be in hell are saved people. People who by grace through faith have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, believing He died on the cross for their sins, that He was buried for their sins, and He rose again the third day. Those are the only folks who won't be in hell. Everybody else, that's where they'll be. That's where they'll stay. So hell is a real place. It's real painful. It's real dark. It's real hot. It's real lonely. It's real crowded. It's real long. Hell is eternal. And notice what Jesus says in verse 44. The worm never dies. The fire is never quenched. The weeping never ceases. The teeth clenching never ends. The darkness never lightens. The loneliness never goes away. You don't want to go to hell and you don't want anybody you know to go to hell. Even your worst enemy, you don't want them in hell. But sadly, with everything else about this, hell is real easy to get to. Just do what comes natural. Follow your sin nature. Never receive salvation. Never experience the life-changing power of Christ and you will go to hell. Well, back to the Roman road. I don't suggest you share that like when you're witnessing to somebody. (laughs) I don't suggest you go off on that tangent. But I'm just letting you know how serious hell is. It's not a game. It's not a drunken party uh, with your buddies. That's not what hell is. That's certainly not the way Jesus described it. And so we see the problem and we see the price. What is the price? Eternal separation from God. We have all sinned. So we have all earned death. So we see the problem. We see the price. Thirdly, let's look at the payment. The payment's in chapter 5 of Romans in verse 8. The payment. This is one of those good Awana verses. One that I learned in Awana. It says there, But God commendeth his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word commendeth means demonstrated. So God demonstrated his love for us. My aunt used to say when I would tell her I love her, or when my mom would tell her, that was her sister, would say she loved her, my aunt would say, Prove it. Well, God, throughout his word, says he loves us. And if you ever were to say to God, prove it, here it is. But God demonstrated, God proved his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To show his love for us, God sent Jesus to die for us. Now, the wages of sin is death. We've already established that. God paid the penalty of sin, death, with his own death. Jesus shed his precious blood to pay for all of our sins. He did so knowing we were and would continue to be sinners. Notice what it says. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet, while we were still sinners. He knew we were sinners when he died for us. He knew we would continue to be sinners, but he did it anyway. Why? Because he's demonstrating his love. I love that old southern gospel song. He knew me, yet he loved me. He knew me, yet he loved me. And maybe some would look at that in a positive sense. Well, God knew all the wonderful things about me and and so on, and so he certainly wanted to die for me because he cares for me. I look at the negative. God knew all the sinfulness, all the wickedness 
He knew all the lies and all the evil thoughts and all the disobedience to my parents. Not anymore, but what used to be disobedience to my parents. He knew all that stuff. And he still died for me. He knew me, yet he loved me. And so we see the problem, we see the price, we see the payment. Let's look next at the present. Romans 6.23, the present. And I don't mean that in terms of time, I mean it as in terms of a gift. We already looked at the first part of verse 23 that says the wage of sin is death. Pick up with the but. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I heard a sermon one time. This preacher said, I want to tell you about the biggest but in the Bible. And I thought he was going to talk about some obscure lady from the Old Testament that I'd never heard of that had a very large backside. He was preaching on this verse. Because it totally changes. The first part of the verse is terrible. The wages of sin is death. I am a sinner. I'm going to die. But... And the whole focus of the verse changes. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is something gift? It's, what is a gift? Gift is something that's given. And God's gift is eternal life. That's what he gives. No strings attached. He gives us eternal life. Now, you probably already figured this out. That does not remove physical death from this life. But it does remove spiritual death forever. When we die physically, we continue living with Jesus in a beautiful place called heaven. Heaven is perfect. Heaven is peaceful. Heaven is permanent. And it's nothing like we can even imagine. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago in the sermon, our last breath on earth becomes our first breath in heaven. That's the gift of God that is eternal life. You're still going to die in this life, barring the rapture. But if the rapture doesn't occur, you and I, we're all going to die physically. But the moment that death is complete, life begins, eternal life in heaven. So that's the present. Nextly, let's look at the procedure. So how do you get to be saved? I realize now, I realize the problem, I'm a sinner. I realize there's a price for my sin, that's death. I realize a payment has been made. I realize God wants to give me a present. So what's the procedure? Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Paul writes that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus... And shall believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Here's the procedure. You must confess. What does that word confess? It says if you confess with your mouth. That means to agree. And what is it? to what is it we are to agree? It says you must confess the Lord Jesus. We are to agree that Jesus is Lord. The word Lord there is the Greek word kurios. It can mean master. But it's also the Greek word for God. And I think when we confess the Lord Jesus, we are confessing both. He is master. He is God. And so the procedure is you've got to confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because Jesus elsewhere said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The scriptures say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
Jesus also said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And so the procedure to get this payment for your sin, you need to confess the Lord Jesus. But there's something else. And we must believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Do you see that, the rest of verse 9 there? You must confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. Jesus was buried for our sins. Jesus rose again from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection proves that his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father as payment for sin. And his resurrection from the dead shows that his sacrifice was effective for us. Jesus rose again from the dead, and so shall we. And so let's conclude by looking at the promise. And the promise is found in chapter 10 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul, quoting Joel 2.32, writes, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God invites anyone who will call on him to do so. He puts out a universal invitation to everyone that has ears, that has eyes, that can comprehend. He puts out an invitation. It's a promise. Whosoever shall call upon me shall be saved. God will save all who call upon him. I wonder tonight, have you called upon him? Have you been saved? Are you on your way to heaven? I don't know. I can only speak for myself. And let me answer those questions for you publicly. Have you called on him? Yes. And not just once, all the time. Have you been saved? Yes. I was seven years old, driving on Interstate 410 in San Antonio, Texas. Well, I wasn't driving. My mom was driving. But I was riding in the car. And I asked mom, I want to be saved. How does that happen? And quite frankly, I don't remember what she told me. But cruising down that road, and I know it was fast because mom had a lead foot. And so whatever, we were cruising down that 410, I-410, and I invited Jesus Christ into my heart to save me. And you know what he did? He saved me. Third question, are you on your way to heaven? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Like most of people, I'm not in any hurry to get there. And I'm just kind of new at this grandparenting thing, you know. And there's a lot of things in this life that I'd like to see or do. But when God's ready, I'm ready. And I want you to know something about God's promise. Not only this one here in verse 13, but every promise God makes, every promise of God is guaranteed. Guaranteed not by the preacher. Guaranteed not by the church. Guaranteed by God himself. And you know what the Bible says about God? He cannot lie. So God's not going to sell you a bill of goods. All he does is share the truth. All he does is show his love. Only a fool would not call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Sadly, This world is full of fools, always has been, always will be. And that means that hell will be full of fools. 
because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I'm here to tell you tonight, there is a God. And this God loves you. And this God wants to save you. And if he's already saved you, he wants to spend eternity with you. And so if you weren't aware of the Roman road, maybe now you know. You can mark your Bibles. You can share this with others. Tell them there's a problem. All have sinned. Tell them there's a price to pay. The wages of sin is death. But tell them there is a payment that has already been made. God showed his love for us. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then God wants to give them a present. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so tell them the procedure. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. And again, this isn't a promise from the preacher. It's not a promise from the church. It's not a promise from the denomination. It's a promise from God. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. Whosoever. Men, yes. Women, yes. Boys, yes. Girls, yes. Whosoever. I've said it before, I'll say it again. You won't get this kind of deal anywhere else. We have an amazing, loving God who cares for us, who wants to spend eternity with us, and that's why he saves us. Make sure tonight that you're saved, and if you're saved, share this, the Romans wrote with others who need to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to be together in your house. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. And we thank you how it's so clear in the Romans road, other places too, but it's so clear in the Romans road that we got a problem, you've got the solution, and your solution has everything to do with your love for us and giving your life for us and rising again from the dead for us. Lord, we're grateful. Give us opportunities to share this with others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.